We'll hear argument now in number 98623 uh, Antonio Slack versus uh, E.K. McDaniel. Mr. Pachetta. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, the spectators are admonished. Do not talk until you get out of the courtroom. The court remains in session. Please proceed, Mr. Pachetta. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. In the first argument in this case last fall, I asked the court to apply a common-sense rule to the questions on which it granted certiorari and to hold that previous dismissals of a petition for exhaustion do not render a subsequent petition second or successive within the meaning of habeas rule 9b, because that's the only well, petition. Well, Mr. Prichetta, I, I do have a problem right off the bat with the, the fact that in a case here called HON, H-O-H-N, we said that a request for a certificate of appealability is a case itself. And if that's correct, it looks to me like your client's case, insofar as we treat it as a certificate of appealability anyway, was filed after what we call EDPA's effective date and is governed by Section 2253C. Respectfully, Your Honor, I don't agree that that's exactly what Hone said. Uh, I think what Hone said was that the case enters the Court of Appeals on the application for the certificate of Well, I certainly thought that's what it said. I have to tell you. So if I think that, then what do we do? Well, I, I would refer, Your Honor, to the, uh, the authorities that we've cited. In fact, an old one decided by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes that a case proceeds, that the appeal is a stage in the case that's begun in the district court. Uh, and the respondents and the amici on behalf of respondents have not offered an alternative definition of a case. Mr. Slack's case was indisputably well, — So if I'm correct about what I think Hone stood for, you'd say it was wrong and we should get rid of it? I don't think I would put it quite that way, Your Honor. I would say that the, the motion for a certificate of appealability addressed to the Court of Appeals in Hone and in this case elevates the case that is in the district court into the Court of Appeals. That is a case that is at that point pending in the Court of Appeals. But it's not a case that's different or separate from the case that's in the district court. Uh, it's but, not but it's a totally, you know, if, if you simply don't file a notice of appeal from the, from the judgment of the district court, the case is over. If you file a notice of appeal, a brand new case starts in the Court of Appeals. I disagree with that, Your Honor. It's the case that's in the district court that is going into a different phase. That's the, my understanding of McKenzie versus Engelhardt oh, is that Hone, the case Hone came considerably after that. Yes. And certainly, I think, uh, I agree with Justice O'Connor, a fair reading of Hone is that this is a new case. I don't think that that was this Court's intent, and of course this Court will tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, but my understanding was that the point in Hone was that the filing of the motion for a certificate of appealability gets the case from the district court in some fashion 
to the Court of Appeals, in the same way that in a case where you don't need a certificate of appealability of all, at all, simply the notice of appeal gets the case into the Court it, of Appeals. It, but, it held that it was a case. It didn't hold that it was a new case. Yes, Your Honor. And, and in order to uh, make your, your opponent's point here, it would have to be a new case. Exactly, Your Honor. Mr. Slack's case was pending in the district court at the time the ADPA was enacted. That case didn't go away. It didn't transmute in some way. It's the same case that went to the Court of Appeals on our motion for a certificate of probable cause, because, of course, since this was a pre-AEDPA case, we asked under the old law for a certificate of probable cause and not a certificate of appealability, and we entered the Court of Appeals with that case in the same way that if uh, we had prevailed in the court below and the state had appealed to the Court of Appeals, the notice of appeal would have vested jurisdiction in the Court of Appeals over this case. It's, the case hasn't changed. Now, the point, I think, that was being focused on in Hone was whether there was anything pending in the Court of Appeals on the motion for a certificate of appealability in that case. And this Court said, yes, that's correct. And it's our position that our case, the case that was pending at the time the AEDPA was enacted, uh, did uh, — vast jurisdiction in the Court of Appeals to decide whether to bring that case up by granting a certificate of appealability. And it's the same case that's before this Court on the propriety of the Court of Appeals' denial of that certificate of appealability. What was uh, filed here was a cause. certificate of probable cause, I guess, not a, a, a um, certificate of appealability. Yes, Your Honor, because at no point in the prior proceedings, in the district court or in the Court of Appeals or in this court until the argument uh, in the fall, did the respondent state uh, ever say that any portion of the ADPA applied to this case? Well, haven't a number of courts of appeal treated those two things just interchangeably? They've treated certificates of probable cause as certificates of appealability. Only because the courts of appeals have uniformly, have not uniformly, but in the main, treated the, or the substantive requirements for a certificate of appealability as the same as those for a certificate of probable cause. And if, as we argue in the second part of our argument, that uh, all the certificate of appealability was intended by Congress to do which was the only position asserted by the proponents of the legislation, was to adopt the barefoot standard, then it's purely a question of terminology. Terminology and, of course, the specification of issues provision. But I I would submit that the state can't rely on any defect, either in the specification of issues provision or in whether we call this a certificate of appealability or a certificate of probable cause, because we asked the district court for a certificate of probable cause. Issue was joined under pre-ADPA law. Uh, the Court of Appeals uh, denied the certificate of probable cause under pre-ADPA law, and this court granted certiorari on our petition under pre-ADPA law. And the question of whether any portion of the ADPA was, would apply to this case uh, was injected into this uh, case by the state attorney general, Amiki, who claimed that it, there was a jurisdictional uh, problem 
under Section 2253. But our position is simply that Lind controls this case. Our case was pending at the time the AEDPA was enacted. There is no dispute about that. Well, what, what Lind held was essentially that uh, there is no uh, retroactivity provision in Section 153, and therefore the normal rules of non-retroactivity apply. And the normal rules of non-retroactivity for a statute that sets forth the substantive requirements for habeas would not apply that statute to any cases that were filed already when the, when the statute was enacted. But the normal rules of retroactivity do not apply uniformly to every matter governed by a statute. I mean, you might have in the same statute the alteration of the substantive requirements for a crime, okay, the alterations of the requirements for filing a lawsuit, and the alteration of evidentiary requirements in the course of a trial. Now, what would constitute a retroactive application of each one of those three is quite different. I I agree that they might be different, Your Honor. That's right. And what Lind involved was the substantive requirements for habeas, and it said this would be retroactive if you applied the new substantive requirements to a case already filed. But it's an entirely different question as to whether requirements concerning the requirements for appeal are being applied retroactively so long as you apply them to cases that are not yet on appeal. And I think that's what's going on here, and it seems to me not at all contrary to Lind to say that the requirements for appealing are governed by by the new law. Your Honor, my understanding of uh, Justice Souter's opinion for the Court in Lind was that we have these two chapters, 154 and 153, by clearly mandating that the Chapter 154, the opt-in provisions, apply to cases pending at the time of the Act, the negative, the strong negative inference arose that the Chapter 153 provisions and the amendments to Section 2253 and the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure are in Chapter 153, don't. They say generally. What you say generally do not apply? Yes, Your Honor. And I think the reason it said generally was because some of those provisions do not deal with the, the initial substantive requirements for getting relief, but deal to such matters as what, what are the conditions for appeal. That's why it said generally. Respectfully, Your Honor, I think that there is a different explanation. The opt-in provisions are not standalone. They do not have the, for instance, the uh, review provisions of Section 2254D, which were in the Chapter 153 amendments. They don't have a separate appeal section. And it's our view of what Lind intended to hold by that use of the word generally was that anything that falls within the opt-in provisions that are covered by Chapter 154 take along with them the general provisions that were enacted by the ADPA as to those cases which qualify for the opt-in treatment. I'd emphasize Mr. Slack's case is not only a non-opt-in case, it's, it's not a capital case. And so under those circumstances, uh, if you are in the opt-in world, all of the amendments to both Chapter 153 and 154 would apply. But if you're not under Chapter 154, 
there, I think, is no basis for saying that the Chapter 153 amendments, which apply to everybody else, apply to a case pending, which Mr. Slack's case clearly was, at the time the AEDPA was enacted. They certainly don't apply retroactively, but what constitutes a retroactive application of them uh, is another question, and I don't consider it a retroactive application of them to say that they apply to all cases that that seek an appeal after the enactment insofar as their provisions governing appeals are concerned. I submit that the inference that this Court drew in Lind with respect to the difference between the opt-in and the non-opt-in chapters is exactly the same in both situations, especially since we have the additional problem that applying different parts of ADPA to different to different parts of a case and different cases, depending on whether they're on appeal or not, would raise the same kind of, I think Justice Breyer referred to it as a mare's nest of problems. Well, I thought, Mr. Buschetta, that you said in the second part of your argument, this is a nice academic discussion. It really doesn't matter because for the issue that's before this Court, whether it's a COA or whether it's a uh, CPC, the what you have to satisfy is the same. That is, since you're not relying, you're not saying the state court misapplied any federal statute, you're claiming a constitutional right, as is usual in habeas cases. So I thought you were saying in the second part of your argument that it doesn't make any difference. I, I will turn to that now. I think the fact that it shouldn't make any difference reduces somewhat the force of the negative inference. Uh, to be drawn, uh, as in Lind, from the, uh, res- the focus on pending cases in Chapter 154. And I think the more, uh, the, the greater the impact uh, that the state argues for of the appeal provisions, the stronger that negative inference is that they shouldn't be applied. But to turn to, to Your Honor's question and to the question that I think Justice O'Connor raised about jurisdiction in the last argument, the current, sta- the current certificate of appealability standard is that you have to show a, make a substantial showing of a denial of a constitutional right. And in using that terminology, I submit that there is no evidence of any sort suggesting that Congress had any intent in using that phrase other than to use it as a shorthand for the uh, phrase violation of the Constitution or laws or treaties of the United States that appears in Section 2254 and in 2241, and that's consistent both with this Court's practice, with this Court's use of the terminology, and with the use of uh, the indiscriminate use of the term federal right, constitutional right, throughout the ADPA. Uh, I would just you, like you're, you're saying then that when the, the, the EDPA says constitutional right, it really means any sort of a, fed, a right claimed under federal statute? I think, Your Honor, it means constitutional laws or treaties of the United States as a short... Well, that's a strange way of expressing it. I don't think so, Your Honor. If you look at McCleskey versus Zant, for instance, where this Court is discussing uh, the history of uh, the Great Writ, at pages uh, 478 to 479 of 499 U.S., uh, this Court's majority opinion, uh, authored by Justice Kennedy, refu- refers to and quotes Wainwright versus Sykes as saying, re- quote, review is available for claims of, quote, 
disregard of the constitutional rights of the accused. And later on, quote, the writ today appears to extend to all dispositive constitutional claims presented in a proper procedural manner. So my position is, if that kind of shorthand, because I don't think that there was any intent in McCleskey or in Wainwright but, versus Sykes. But what was being discussed in McCleskey was a constitutional right, so it makes perfectly good sense there to talk about it. That language wasn't intended to cover the whole scope of habeas. Well, Your Honor, that's exactly, I think, my point, is that this Court uses shorthand the same way that Congress does. When you say habeas uh, uh, is there to address constitutional rights, you don't say in every opinion uh, you don't repeat the phrase from Section 2254. Well, but in, in an opinion where the habeas claim is based on a constitutional right, it makes perfectly good sense to say, here we have a constitutional claim made under the habeas statute. But when Congress says it's not talking about the, any particular claim that's being raised in a case, such as we do, when it says the denial of a constitutional right, I think it's certainly a very plausible inference. It means that and nothing more. The, the difficulty with that, Your Honor, is it doesn't look at the whole statute, which, of course, is one of the standards of statutory construction. But this is the provision that is dealing with what can be raised. Uh, yes, Your Honor, but if you look, as we, have, as we have argued in our briefing, at the use of the term constitutional right and federal right throughout the ADPA, particularly, and I would cite as uh, kind of Exhibit A, you know, under Section 2254D, a, a grant of habeas relief is allowed if the uh, state court's disposition violates clearly established federal law. Is, isn't your underlying claim here one of constitutional right? Well, yes, ours is. Don't you think there is a substantial claim? Yes, Your Honor, and that has not been it? argued, and, and the state hasn't argued to the contrary. In here. fact, do you, Our, have, do you have even any right? Dislike, as far as I can see, what he's complaining about in the state criminal process is a deprivation of constitutional rights. He's not raising any federal statute. He's not raising any treaty. Yes, Your Honor, and that's the second part of our argument, is that whatever this provision means, it can mean only the review of the substantive underlying claim. There is no decision by any court that says a denial of a constitutional, a substantial showing of a denial of a constitutional right cannot be made on the basis of showing, as in this case, that the district court erroneously refused to address a substantive constitutional claim at all because of a procedural error. That's interesting. And, and, and you would apply that consistently? You would always look at the underlying claim so that even if the underlying claim, uh, if the underlying claim was statutory or based upon a treaty, and then in the disposition of that claim, the, uh, the, the uh, procedural right was, that was denied was so fundamental that it was a violation of the Constitution to deny that procedural right, and then the violation of that procedural right is, is sought to be appealed on habeas. You would dismiss it because the underlying claim, after all, is not a constitutional claim. That's what you said. Your, Your Honor. I'm not sure you'd do that. We, we, we don't have to reach that point because our underlying claims are constitutional. Our, I'd like to know what your theory is. Our, your, your theory is that you always look to the underlying claim or that if either the underlying claim or the procedural claim is, is, is a constitution, rises to the level of constitutional claim. Our position in this case, Your Honor, is that to decide this case, the Court does not have to reach whether the underlying claim 
is constitutional or a violation of the constitutional laws or treaties of the United States. I this thought your po- the point you were making is you look to see what you were complaining about in the state criminal process, not when you get to the district court complaining on, on habeas. The, so if you're in the state, and whether you say it was a procedural violation or a substantive violation, I, as long as the focus of 2253C is on the state criminal process, what went wrong there, then all you have is constitutional. I've I've expressed myself badly, Your Honor. What we are saying is you have a a substantive underlying constitutional claim which attacks something, whether substantive or procedural, that happened in the state proceedings. That's the basis for relief. The state and Amiki's position is that if review of that underlying claim that you've raised in your federal petition is barred by a procedural error that the district court commits, such as in this case by holding that a, a petition is second or successive when it's not, it's their position that this amendment to 2253 prevents us from ever getting any appellate review of that question, either as to the underlying substantive question or as to the validity of the procedural ruling. And our position is this is utterly inconsistent with this court's practice. It is contradicted by the use of the, by EDPA's explicit limits on this court's jurisdiction, such as in 2240, uh, such as in 22, section 2244, uh, C, uh, or rather 2244 B3E, where, uh, in EDPA, it, the Congress said you cannot review on certiorari or rehearing a, a decision by the Court of Appeals whether or not to allow the filing of a second or successive petition. It's our position that this was not in Congress's mind, that the only thing before Congress at the time that this provision was enacted, that Mr. Lundgren, who was then the Attorney General of uh, California and one of the major proponents of this legislation, said was, we want to codify barefoot. It's our position that that is all that happened in the the Codify what? Uh, Uh, Barefoot versus system. If I could reserve the remainder of my time. Very well, Mr. Pichetta. Mr. Roberts, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Certificate of Appealability provisions applied to Petitioner because he filed his Notice of Appeal after EDPA was enacted. Petitioner may Is obtain- that on, on what theory? On the theory that it's a new case or on the theory that LEND doesn't cover that? Uh, we uh, accept the, a reading of LEND that uh, the question of whether the provisions apply turns on whether the case that they govern was pending um, when EDPA was enacted. And because those provisions govern only the discrete uh, proceeding in which the habeas petitioner seeks authorization to appeal, we think that's the relevant case uh, for determining their applicability. Why? Why? That is, I mean, I read your brief. It's very logical, very good. I question in my mind is why make this so complicated? I mean, if you're right, there are very few lawyers in the country who understand it, let alone the judges and all the courts of appeals and who knows what they've decided. And the certificate isn't the most the name on the certificate, whether it's CPC or some other name, isn't so important. And all of a sudden, appeals are generated, and the law is about the same anyway. And so why isn't the simplest thing just to say, this is part of the case? It means new cases, and that's it. It's, uh, what harm would be done? Our, our position isn't, any more, is, isn't materially more complex, uh, Justice <laughs> Breyer. 
Uh, it's just that the uh, whether the provision at issue uh, is applicable turns on whether the case that it governs is pending. And for all the provisions of EDPA except for the certificate requirements, that will mean that it's triggered by the filing of the petition in district court because all of those provisions. And so what we've done is introduced a little curly cue and told uh, all the yes. lawyers, by the way, it's, it's, the, it's when you file the petition in district court, but for the CPC. And eventually, I guess that word would get out. Why? That makes I mean, sense. after all, case can mean different things in different contexts. Yes, case can mean different things in different contexts, and, and that's why um, we think that uh, it's justifiable to do it here, because it makes sense. Well, all we're talking about here is a transitional rule yes. anyway. It's perfectly clear that eventually EDPA will apply to all appeals. That's right. Um, it is just a transitional rule, and there are probably very few cases that are still pending that it applies to. Um, and, and it makes sense, because uh, traditionally and logically, Appeal procedures, like the certificate requirement, have applied to appellate proceedings that commence after the procedures are enacted. No, but didn't we — no, please. Didn't, didn't we, we put it I, — I just took a quick look at Hone, the, the, the principal opinion in Hone, and didn't we speak of case there in more or less the following terms? We said that the denial of, of uh, this threshold condition does not prevent a case from being in the Court of Appeals. Uh, we, we, in effect, we, we did not say in Hone that the COA request was itself a separate case. Uh, as, as in Justice Scalia's suggestion a moment ago, we didn't say that it was something new. Uh, and, and in fact, elsewhere we, we spoke of the, in, a, in, in essence, the indivisibility of the, of the merits of the case from, from the COA. So if, if, if we read Hone, uh, not as indicating that a COA is a new and separate proceeding, why do we have to be as complicated as you would have us be? Uh, well, uh, first, uh, I don't think that you can read Hone that way, Your Honor, because, uh, because under Hone, uh, the case couldn't have been in the Court of Appeals. The underlying case couldn't be in the Court of Appeals because a certificate had an issue. So Hone had to hold that it was a separate case uh, to, to, achieve, uh, to achieve the result of, of making the case in the Court of Appeals. Um, but in any case, uh, I, as I uh, was trying to explain to Justice Breyer, it doesn't make it materially more complicated. It means that for this purpose, for the purpose of the certificate provisions only, um, they apply if the notice of appeal was filed after EDPA was enacted. And that makes sense because they govern only appeal procedures and it makes sense to apply a provision that governs only appeal procedures to appellate proceedings that begin uh, after they're enacted. Why, why don't you just do that directly without I, — I frankly find it very strange to regard this as a, as, a, as a separate case. I think that's just contrary to normal usage. Why don't you simply say that, that all that Lind held was that uh, the substantive requirements are governed uh, uh, by a, a non-retroactive principle, and what non-retroactivity means for the substantive requirements is that you apply them to all cases. Uh, you, do, you, you do not apply the new requirements to all cases that were already filed. But what non-retroactivity means for new appellate procedures is that you do not apply them to any cases that have not that have already been appealed. I agree with you, it's, Justice Scalia. It gets Scalia, to the that same it, point without, without having to use the, the — it seems to me a strange use of, of what's a case. I, I agree with you, Justice Scalia, that um, that, uh, that gets to the, to, uh, to the same point and that it's not retroactive to apply it here. Um, that's part of the reason that it, uh, that it makes sense. Um, 
You probably ought to say something about the merits before yes. you okay. sit down. Um, uh, we believe that petitioner is entitled to a certificate only if he makes a substantial showing of the denial of a constitutional right. And when, in, as in this case, the district court has denied relief on procedural grounds, that showing has two parts. First, that there's a substantial argument that he can overcome the procedural bar. And second, that there's a substantial argument that his habeas petition raises a meritorious claim. Uh, he can appeal if there's a clear procedural bar to relief because permitting appeals based on the abstract merit of the underlying claim when relief on that claim is unavailable would uh, thwart the purpose of the certificate requirement to prevent frivolous or unnecessary appeals. And he also can appeal if his underlying constitutional claim clearly lacks merit, even if the district court may have erred in denying relief on procedural grounds. That limitation is imposed by the term constitutional in the certificate standard, and it accords with the purpose of the certificate requirement, because there's no need to correct a district court's procedural error if that error prevents consideration of only meritless claims. Uh, we don't think that appeal is foreclosed just because the district court denies relief on procedural grounds. Precluding appeals from procedural orders uh, in all cases would not further the purpose of the certificate requirement because it would bar appeals of meritorious habeas petitions that raise constitutional claims. And it wouldn't be consistent with the text of the certificate standard either because a prisoner makes a substantial showing of the denial of a constitutional right if he makes a substantial showing that his conviction was imposed in violation of the Constitution and the habeas court erred in refusing him relief. What do you think we should do with this case? Um, well, we think that uh, uh, you should hold that the certificate of appealability provisions apply uh, and uh, that the standard uh, in this circumstance has the two parts uh, that we said. And then... Uh, Either, uh, depending on what the court wanted to do, uh, there would be two options in that circumstance. One, uh, the court could uh, address the question that it initially granted uh, certiorari on in the course of answering the first part of that standard and then remand to the Court of Appeals. You're telling me what we could do. I'm just wondering what you think, think we should, should do. Uh, well, if the court, uh, I think that if the court thinks that the first, uh, that the question that initially granted certiorari uh, on uh, is a question of continuing importance that it still wants to resolve, uh, that would be a, a, an acceptable uh, way to do it. Otherwise, the court should uh, remand the case uh, to the Court of Appeals for application of the standard. If there are no further questions, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Roberts. <clears throat> Mr. Sarnowski. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, it is indeed Nevada's position consistent with the Eighth Circuit ruling upon which we rely and cite in our brief, Tiedemann v. Benson, that the changes to Section 2253 regarding certificates of appealability apply to the appeal in this case, which was initiated after the effective date, April 24, 1996, uh, in fact, the claims at issue, which were the subject of the district court's dismissal and the circuit court's uh, review, were filed after the effective date of the case. Uh, in Tiedemann, the Eighth Circuit, uh, uh, speaking to a question that Justice Scalia just asked, uh, noted that while in Lynn this court held that the changes generally didn't apply uh, to the substantive uh, issues, uh, it indicated that the court could think of no reason why a new provision exclusively directed toward appeal procedures would depend for its effective date on the filing of a case in a trial court instead of on the filing of a notice of appeal or similar document. And thus, it held in the 1997 uh, ruling that EDPA does apply. Uh, 
uh, and that the COA provisions apply. Subsequent, the Hone case also came to this court out of the Eighth Circuit. That was a 2255 case in which initially the petitioner challenged uh, the way the federal statute had been applied to him. Uh, at some point in time in the litigation, after he appealed, the government conceded that it was not merely a constitutional, or excuse me, a statutory issue, but rather a issue of constitutional dimension. And ultimately, uh, as this court knows, the Hone case ended up here for its uh, determination on the limited issue uh, regarding whether it could review the denial of the COA. Mr. Sarnowski, assuming EDPA applies, are you going to talk about whether you agree or disagree with the standard that the Solicitor General would ask us to apply here? Yes, I am. Um, I would assert that the change in language was not, as Mr. Slack would assert, uh, was nothing more than a mistake or meant nothing. Congress changed the term federal to the term constitutional, constitutional in the statute, keeping in mind that the COA provision has application to both state prisoners who bring their cases to the, the district courts and to federal prisoners as well. Uh, it frankly does what we see Congress having intended to do, uh, which is to put limitations on the, the types of issues that the courts would have to adjudicate. In this course, in this case, the Congress used the word constitutional, and this court has in Well, but if, if that's the underlying claim, and if the problem is uh, where the petitioner makes a substantial showing that the district court erred on the preliminary question of whether it's second or successive, you would say that the Court of Appeals could never address that Our position problem, and that the law then would evolve in district court without any appellate review uh, on legal questions such as exhaustion or procedural default and so on. Our position, consistent with that briefed by the, the several states uh, in this matter, is just that. Uh, we, we would see the evolution well, I of think the law. That's uh, unfortunate and troublesome, I have to tell you, and I wonder if uh, the Solicitor General's position wouldn't be the better view here. It is, is what I would call a middle ground view. However, uh, sometimes better doesn't uh, necessarily mean it is one consistent with uh, what Congress has mandated. We do see that there would be a, an availability of remedy by way of an extraordinary writ proceeding if a ruling by a federal district court or even a, a circuit court, for that matter, on a procedural issue such as exhaustion, exhaustion or procedural bar were uh, such that uh, this court may not be able to entertain it or could entertain well, what, that. What sort of an extraordinary writ would you envision, Mr. Sarnowski? Uh, I would uh, say a, an extraordinary writ would include an original filing in this court. Uh, to seek uh, mandamus or other appropriate uh, extraordinary remedies. Well, quite, quite apart from uh, the, the proper construction of the statute, it, 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 one would hope it's not likely that Congress intended to transfer from what would otherwise be review in the Court of Appeals to re direct review in this court. 
I don't think that was Congress' intent to transfer all those cases, many cases here. I, and my response was what sort of remedy uh, could occur uh, if, in fact, a, a holding on a procedural matter was so egregious uh, in the district court, and we assert that the holding in this case is a run-of-the-mill type of holding and not egregious in any way. My, my experience, uh, if I understand you correctly, uh, would be relevant. It seems to me vast percentage, maybe the overwhelming percentage of cases on appeal in habeas proceedings do have to do with procedural issues, whether there was an adequate straight ground, whether there's a, a basis for uh, 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 new evidence and therefore you're excused from not raising the claim before, things like that. And your position is that all those, uh, you can't get a COA at all? There are a large number of procedural issues. That is correct. And, and, I, and I'm right in thinking that's your position? That, that is our position. Wouldn't this have been the most controversial provision in the whole reform package uh, if that were so? Um, it certainly would be controversial if this Court were to uh, say that that is what the I'm not thinking means. of controversy by this saying I couldn't find anything in the history that suggested that this was the major uh, change in the law, but the way you're reading it, it sounds as if it would be a, an enormous change. Am I right about that? I, I agree that there is nothing directly in the history. What I believe Mr. Pachetta referred to uh, statements by then-Attorney General Lundgren, who, as he uh, accurately described, was an, a, a proponent, although not a sponsor, obviously. While he asserted that uh, the court should codify, or the Congress should codify what this court uh, said in barefoot and limit review to uh, substantial federal rights. Uh, what in fact happened is the the, pro, the sponsors, the congressmen and senators who ended up agreeing on the legislation, used a different word. So I, I think in order to give import to that word, you have to look at at uh, what it is that uh, can be gleaned from the use of that word. And it is not procedure. And that is all of, of what Mr. Slack uh, had to argue about because the, the district court's rulings were wholly procedural. The statute doesn't say that you can only appeal a constitutional right. What it says is you cannot issue a COA. You can issue a COA only if there is a substantial claim. Now, that's perfectly consistent with there being there in the case that you're trying to appeal a substantial claim. It doesn't say that has to be exhaust the, 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 the uh, uh, grounds on which you are appealing. Um, if you read the section, that being uh, Rule 2, uh, C1, subsection E2, to mean that while it says you have to make a substantial showing of the denial of a constitutional right, but that doesn't limit what you can litigate, then I would agree with your question. Our position simply is uh, I, I don't think uh, you can read where one provision is included and then say, but it could include other provisions as well, just by practice. Um, in this instance, uh, a case cited by the petitioner in this case, the Nichols case, Nichols versus Bowersox, uh, First Circuit case, it assumed Congress had the power to do this, and, and we would assert it certainly did. We, everyone uh, who litigates these cases on a daily basis may think that was a really bad choice if it indeed exercised its power to do so, but uh, where Congress has spoken, uh, as we believe they have in the COA provision, uh, then it has spoken. 
And we assert that in this instance where Mr. Slack's petition, the five claims that were really at issue, all of which he brought in well after EDPA became effective, all of which we believed and the district judge believed uh, accordingly that were unexhausted and, and four of the five were abusive, uh, abuse and, and unexhaustion simply don't get, have uh, anything to do with having a meritorious claim. But the claims that he brought were constitutional claims. So one could surely read this subsection C of section 2253 to mean that even if you could surmount the procedural hurdle of adequate independent state grounds, still you don't get a certificate of appealability unless you show that you had made a claim about what went on in the state criminal proceedings of the denial of a constitutional right. So that seems to me the most logical reading of this provision, that it's talking about what is your basic habeas claim. Why am I being detained unlawfully? Because there was a constitutional flaw in the proceedings in the state court. Mr. Slack couched his claims in terms of federal constitutional violations, certainly, as many prisoners do. However, many prisoners also couch their claims in terms of violations merely of state law, for instance, evidentiary uh, rulings that, that this court had occasion but to that, that visit. You didn't need you, you didn't need any new legislation to toss that out. At habeas, you can't complain about a violation of purely state law. You are not, not supposed, federal habeas. You're not supposed to be able to, but it happens with with great regularity uh, in state habe- or federal habeas proceedings involving state prisoners, and they raise other issues as well. Would such cases um, merit a CPC? We, we would argue a COA or a CPC, yeah, even, Your Honor. I didn't think that those cases were problematic for the federal courts before or now. Well, the, the Fourth Circuit recently in Gray versus Netherland uh, indicated, for example, when uh, a prisoner there asserted the violation of a treaty right, that that didn't raise a constitutional right. Uh, so th- it, they... Yes, so, so I don't know why that difference from what I was saying, that if this, in, except that under the old law you could raise something under a treaty or a federal statute, and you brought up a rare case where the underlying claim would be a treaty or a statute. But mostly these are complaints about something that violated your constitutional right, and it's usually some procedural right. That is the, the, the great majority of the type of claims that are filed. I, w- I would grant you that. And I, I would also indicate that while it would uh, forge or uh, require a significant change to disallow rulings by the Federal Circuit Courts on those issues, it is not one that is outside the boundaries of Congress' power to make. And unless you just... Uh, by the argument, if you will, that the petitioner has asserted here that Congress didn't mean anything and they didn't change anything at all. Well, that's some that's the general's argument. Why isn't that a sensible reading of uh, 2255? I don't necessarily understand the, the solicitor's argument to, to mean it didn't change anything. Uh, no, I, I don't. But, I, but you seem to be disting yourself 
from the Solicitor General's argument. And I want to know, first, are you or do you agree with the Solicitor General? We don't agree wholly on that provision. We believe it disallows review of procedural rulings such as the ones that Mr. Slack sought review on in the Ninth Circuit and was denied review on. Well, when they say constitutional right, certainly uh, I take it it would no longer be available to uh, raise a claim under the Interstate Agreement on Detainers Act that the state court had violated that. That would be our position. That could, that could have been raised before. Correct. And so that there is some change uh, uh, in, in that sense. There, there is, but the, the, the very small uh, number of cases that arise under the IAD or uh, federal treaties uh, is so small, frankly, as to be uh, of little import in the universe of state habeas cases that uh, federal or state prisoners bring to the federal courthouses. Uh, I would say that uh, we recognize that even some of the courts in, in this country, the, the Tenth Circuit, for example, have indicated that it was a uh, that the wording change was a distinction without a difference. Um, the Lennox case, which is cited by the petitioner, the court literally said that. Uh, however, it, it in the same breath, it indicated that. Uh, it, it characterized it changes to EDPA Section 2253 as significant. But yet it says it replicated the standard for a certificate. I don't see how the change can be significant if it didn't change anything. Uh, and, and that is our position in the matter. Uh, while it, the, certainly the historical record and the development of the statute, which occurred over a long period of time. The Solicitor General's uh, argument, I think, uh, recognizes a, a change. That in order to get a certificate of whatever it is now, COA, you would not be able to get it simply by showing that there was a substantial showing of a denial of a procedural right under the habeas statute. There was something was called second and successive, and it wasn't. You would also have to show that your underlying claim was substantial. And I don't think you had to do that before. I understand that to be their argument, and I think it's a good one. However, it, it does not necessarily seem to go as far as what the, the word constitutional means in, in, under the statute, and that is, of course, uh, the, the question that the Court has, has asked us to try to speak to. And, and unfortunately, there aren't, uh, there isn't a lot of case law, and the case law that, that is out there uh, has been cited by both sides, the, the Tiedemann case being the one on which we primarily rely from the Eighth Circuit. In briefly addressing the other question that uh, this Court had uh, asked the parties to look at, and and that is the the change to uh, the actual statute itself, uh, that is the the, uh, abuse of the writ statute, uh, we have submitted our assertion that uh, the, the abuse of the writ statute in this case, or the application of the new statute, frankly, would make no major difference in the outcome compared to the old statute, and particularly uh, the application of Rule 9B. You, you, were, you asked the question, Justice Stevens, what should happen? Uh, and the Solicitor General 
uh, answered that uh, this court could revert to the first question that the, was posed and decide whether it was a continuing import. Uh, we suggest that it is of continuing import, uh, certainly in our jurisdiction. Uh, uh, there was an assertion that there are very few cases or will be very few cases. I can tell you there are uh, many in our jurisdiction and and in, particularly from the state of California, you may recall the assertion in their brief that the Ninth Circuit has adopted what we uh, colloquially will call the uh, parking lot procedure, whereby they treat pre-EDPA filings dating back to the early 1990s as uh, actual filings, merely where prisoners sought the appointment of counsel. Those Many cases are still pending and, and, frankly, may not even get back into the federal district courts where they have been, quote, unquote, parked. And it is in that context that I say the first question that you all, that we uh, argued in the fall, is of continuing importance. Mr. Sarnowski, can I ask you about um, your interpretation of 2253, like Justice O'Connor? And I am inclined to think that... Uh, the underlying, if the underlying claim is a denial of a constitutional right, it uh, it may suffice. It seems to me the strongest argument against that, and, and I haven't I haven't heard you assert it. Maybe I should have asked this question of, of the Solicitor General. Uh, but it seems to me the strongest argument against it is if you do look to the underlying claim and say, has there been a substantial showing? in the underlying claim that, it, that a constitutional right was denied. Uh, it seems to me then, even if the procedural ground from which appeal is immediately sought is entirely clear, even though there's not much of a doubt about the correctness of the procedural ruling, you would have to, you, you would have to allow uh, appeal. I, I don't see, in other words, I don't see how the, the Solicitor General gets the second half of, of, of his interpretation of 2253 uh, C2. The first half, he says, is that you look to see whether the underlying claim is a substantial showing of a denial of a constitutional right. But, he says, if the procedural ruling was, you know, uh, rolling off a log, there's no doubt about its correctness, you don't get a certificate of, of appealability. And I don't see how, how we can impose that latter condition. Well, the, in that regard, in the state's uh, last brief, the amicus brief uh, authored by California, I, I believe speaks to it in that uh, if you note the language of uh, 2253 subsection C1A, it requires uh, or it allows an appeal to be taken to the Court of Appeals only upon the final order uh, in a habeas case. And, and the question then becomes, what is the court reviewing? Uh, or the higher court, if you will, what is it going to review? In this instance, there was a written ruling, which is contained in the joint appendix in this case, which basically outlines what the petitioner said his claims were at various times and the court's conclusion that they were either uh, unexhausted or abusive. The, the lower court ruling, the, the order itself, the final order, is totally devoid of any discussion of the merits. So then you would have uh, the, the higher uh, intermediate appellate court reaching down to try to figure out what was uh, in 
in terms of the merits of the underlying claims, what they were. In many instances, you don't have that. Well, I guess, I could, could you argue that, that the, just the introductory phrase of C-1, unless a circuit justice or judge issues a certificate of appealability, an appeal may not be taken? And maybe implicit in that is that they wouldn't issue a certificate of appealability unless they thought that the, the ruling was, uh, you know, was, was close. Could, could you say it's implicit in that language? I think it's the, the, the practice. I don't know if the language makes it implicit. Perhaps the, the practice over time has made it so. Yeah. I'm just unable to answer that. Answer. With any oh, yes, your answer is right the second time, wrong the first time. <laughs> Unless the Court has any further questions, I would submit it on behalf of the State. Thank you. Very well, Mr. Saranowski. Uh, Mr. Pachetta, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> There's a thread in this Court's statutory interpretations ca ca cases that's expressed in Justice Kennedy's opinion for the Court in Hone, Justice Souter's opinion for the Court in Jones versus United States that's expressed in many other cases that we do not, it is not reasonable to assume that Congress intended a major change in practice without making that intent clear. But the state's position on the scope of the certificate of appealability is that without any indication, any discussion, Congress intended by enacting Section 2253 to erect an entirely one-sided system of review of procedural errors in habeas cases in the federal court. And the idea that Congress would have done that would have imposed on this court and on the courts of appeals the burden of regulating district court procedural rulings in habeas cases by extraordinary writ simply is not reasonable. The substantiality question that's been raised by the argument of the Solicitor General as to the substantiality of the underlying claim, we have to remember Mr. Slack has never gotten a hearing, has never had any proceedings on the substantiality of his underlying claim. All we have is a procedural ruling covering allegations which, for the purpose of a motion to dismiss, have to be taken as true. It's our position that if the procedural ruling covers allegations of a substantial constitutional claim, then the procedural ruling has to be reviewable. Otherwise, we have a monstrosity of a statute which is replicated in no other area of the law where one side has the right to have procedural errors reviewed and the other doesn't. You, you agree that if the procedural ruling itself is clearly correct, uh, you don't get a COA? I don't necessarily uh, — well, I think the, the problem with the historical practice, I, the short answer is yes, I, I would agree with that. The problem is because of the predominance of procedural issues in habeas practice, the practice has developed that we focused on the, the procedural issue as the grounds for denying the COA or the, rather the CPC, and the underlying uh, merits of the constitutional claims are assumed because for the purpose of a motion to dismiss, they have to be taken as true. Third, there is no change, as it has been expressed, from federal to constitutional in the statute. The, the law before uh, the adoption of the ADPA was barefoot, which used substantial showing of a denial of a federal right, but which also used terms like questions of subs some substance, issues debatable among jurists of reason. It's our position that Congress, in a number of bills which indiscriminately used the term federal right or constitutional right, was trying to do one thing, 
It was simply trying to adopt the barefoot standard. It was not 100 percent clear, as many things in the AEDPA are not 100 percent clear. But there is not a shred of evidence in the record before this Court or in all of the proceedings before Congress that the congressional intent was anything else. Thank you, Honor. Thank you, Mr. Pichetta. The case is sub- The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.